Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will find our way back into our study of the tabernacle after, I think, a couple of weeks off for one reason or another. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can study these things tonight. We're grateful that you have revealed uh, through the Old Testament different aspects of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ using many different types and many different events and people to depict different facets of his ministry, his person, his work. And, Father, that through these you prepared uh, Israel and you prepared the world to recognize him when he, when he came to know that he was indeed the eternal Son of God who'd come to take away the sins of the world. Now, Father, as we study, continue to study the person of Christ in the tabernacle, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, and they might give, a, give us a greater appreciation of the unity of Scripture and the person and work of our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it seems like this summer, for one reason or another, we've had several things that have interfered on Thursday night, and hopefully uh, that won't continue much longer. But the last couple of weeks, we had the plumbing situation last Thursday night, the week before I was away on, on vacation. So it was actually three weeks ago that we had our last lesson in Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 9, but actually we're doing background work on the tabernacle so that when we get into the details of Hebrews 9, we can come to it just as a first century Jew would come to any information about the tabernacle with a full understanding of what was going on uh, from an Old Testament perspective. And we've gone through the tabernacle from the entryway uh, into the courtyard. We looked at the first piece of furniture, the brazen altar, the events that would take place there. So we looked at the five different types of sacrifices, the different things that would go on at the brazen altar, the ritual there, that that primarily depicted the substitutionary atonement. And that is a picture of Christ as our substitute. And this is just such a fundamental, uh, fundamental doctrine to understand the work of Christ. And it's amazing today to me to see how things that were, at least within evangelicalism, 40 or 50 years ago were uh, not really debated. Uh, you had debates over the extent of the atonement, and that's gone on for centuries. But debates over the nature of the atonement within Protestantism has not been a uh, really much of an issue. You've had... Uh, various views that have come up within the uh, Arminian camp. You had the Grodian or governmental view that came up. Uh, he was one of the uh, Dutch Arminians in the early 17th century, in the, the first real defining uh, conflict between Calvinism on the one hand, high Calvinism, and, Ar and Arminianism. And the Grodian view was the idea that Christ isn't dying as a substitute or paying the penalty for sin. He is simply showing uh, and bearing the wrath of God to show how much God hates sin and that sin has no place in the government or administration of God. That view got picked up by a few different uh, so-called evangelical groups down through the years, but uh, it did not have a lot of play. And then last, what, two weeks ago, I guess it was, when I took a couple of days off for vacation, sort of a busman's holiday in some ways because I went to Dallas, and whenever you go to Dallas, 
If you're a graduate of Dallas Seminary, you have to go and genuflect at the Dallas Seminary bookstore. And, you know, your wallet genuflects as well as does the bank account. But I was looking at, I like to go there because you just see all kinds of books that you don't even know exist. And uh, tremendous, uh, some good, some not so good. And I ran across a book that was titled Four Views of the Nature of the Atonement. Not four views on the extent of the atonement, but on the nature of the atonement. Four different views within uh, contemporary evangelicalism. And I didn't even take the time or waste the time to uh, pick it up and buy it. I don't want to get distracted reading something like that. But it just shows how... What once was a fairly good bastion of conservative, biblical, and I'm going to use the term a little bit loosely, not in terms of a strict uh, inspiration inerrancy view, but just within the camp of those that would be part of what's, what's called the Evangelical Theological Society, there was still an agreement of the basic nature of the atonement as being substitutionary. Uh, there might be a, one other competing view, but that was that was the dominant, far, by far the dominant view. But that's breaking down, and the more we get the church as a whole, the visible church and leadership in the visible church, to get away from the text of Scripture, especially with the influence of emergent theologies, with the emergent church, they 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 go back to these aberrant views. Of, of the atonement. And it always, it amazed me this last year when we were going through, on Monday night with the history of doctrine class and we went through the study of the atonement, I, I realized that uh, it wasn't until the 10th century, a thousand years after, or 900 years after Christ, it wasn't until then that you had a clear, concise articulation of substitutionary atonement with Anselm and his work, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man. And it was in that that you, that you, people believed in substitutionary atonement until then, but it wasn't systematized and articulated clearly until, for almost a thousand years. And, I, and uh, one of the theses that uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has set forth in his study, The Life of Christ from a Jewish Perspective, is that once you had this clear break between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the second century, they lost the connection and understanding to the Old Testament. If you study these Old Testament sacrifices, you clearly understand the concept of substitution. That's what's depicted there. But that just got lost and muddied and confused. And But that's the primary thing that you see at the brazen altar. Uh, plus you see the fellowship, one fellowship, the peace offering, which... Uh, is really a shared communal meal. That is very important there. Then there's the labor, which depicts cl- ongoing cleansing after salvation, uh, the Old Testament version or the ritual version of 1 John 1, 9, and then the entry into the holy place, and pointing out that there were the uh, three different pieces of furniture inside of the holy place. And here we have an artist's depiction of what it looked like to what the tabernacle looked like with the Shekinah uh, glory, the cloud hovering over the uh, inner tabernacle, the holy place itself, the smoke ascending from the burnt offerings, and then uh, we see the inner part. Wait a minute, went too far. The inner part of the the holy place itself with the uh, menorah, the golden menorah, the golden lampstand on the left, the uh, altar of incense again, up against the veil, and then the table of showbread on the right. And this is our focal point in the last lesson, and this one. And what I've been trying to do in each of these lessons is point out how, uh, point out the significance of the furniture itself in the Old Testament and within Jewish ritual, and then tie it together historically up into the New Testament and how each of these elements uh, is depict something related to the person or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the uh, lampstand depicted Jesus from John as the light of the world, so the table of showbread, the unleavened bread, uh, depicts Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And so last time 
This was as far as we, we got. We went through the various names related to the table of showbread. The uh, primarily refers to the bread of the presence. It is bread before the presence of God or bread before the face of God, which, of course, God is dwelling in uh, on the mercy seat between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. And we looked at the description of the table in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. We looked at the physical design of the table itself, the uh, fact that it was made with acacia wood, which was an impermeable wood that would uh, show little signs of of, uh, corruptibility, which depicted the impeccability of Christ. The gold depicts his deity, so the two together depict uh, his the union of his humanity and deity. The design of the table is given in Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 and following. And then we looked at the symbolism of the table, the impeccability in terms of the humanity of Christ, the undiminished deity of Christ, and then how this depicted the hypostatic union. We had a definition for the hypostatic union to remind us of its significance, that the term hypostatic union describes the person of the incarnate Christ as the union of two natures, two hypostases, two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. These two natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, so that in the incarnation he didn't lose any aspects of his deity. It doesn't uh, diminish any aspects of his humanity. Uh, he's with uh, the union. He's without loss or transfer of property or attributes. There's no mixing of the attributes between the two. Uh, the union is both personal and eternal. A million years from now, Jesus Christ will still be in hypostatic union. Uh, Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. John 1.14, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, and 1 John, 1 John 4, 2. So we went through all of these different aspects of the doctrine. We looked at the doctrine of the showbread itself, that the uh, bread was unleavened, indicating it without sin. That depicts the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the bread is used as symbolically in the Old Testament to depict uh, the supply and provision of God for that which sustains life. God is the source of life, and God is the one who gives us real life. This is uh, emphasized in Deuteronomy 8.3, is quoted in Luke 4.4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So bread represents spiritual nourishment. The baking of the bread depicts the judgment of sin imputed to Jesus Christ, his being, uh, his bearing our sin in his body on the cross. The frankincense that was sprinkled on the loaves depicted the value of Christ's life. The offering of the, of the bread in the tabernacle depicts grace-oriented free will giving. And then the eating of the bread depicts the importance of our fellowship with God. Whenever you have bread, any kind of food, you have food, eating, table, any of these elements. And, of course, this is a great background for understanding the Lord's table. It depicts fellowship with God. It is a picture of people sitting down together, eating and having a fellowship around the table. So the idea of fellowship is always part of the imagery uh, related, to, uh, related to bread. I then looked at a couple of incidences in the Old Testament that are uh, one in particular, 1 Samuel 21, 5 uh, and 6, where David is um, on the run from Saul, and he goes to the tabernacle, and Ahimelech, uh, the high priest, gives him some of the bread from the table of showbread to eat, indicating that uh, his grace orientation and the provision for David and then this is used by the Lord Jesus Christ when the Pharisees challenge him as to why he allowed his disciples to go through the grain fields on a Sabbath and to pluck the heads of the grain and eat them. And he uses this same incident, incident from First uh, Samuel. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread 
which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. What just happened? Just, hmm, sound? Yeah, yeah, just, okay. Strange things going on. So the, the picture here is, and the point that Jesus is making, is that, the, that there is room for grace and utilization of uh, different things within the law, and it's not to be used as the Pharisees used it. Now, that covered the Old Testament background for the table of showbread. Now, this imagery of the bread is then picked up by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6. So, I want you to open your Bibles to John uh, John chapter 6, and we will pick up on, and do a little background on this. Actually, the key, uh, the key verses begin down around uh, verse 22. Verse 22 begins on the following day. Well, what happened on the preceding day sets the stage for uh, what is going to be taught in the last half of the, uh, of the chapter. This is an extremely important chapter to understand a number of different uh, aspects of Christ's ministry. And so I want to spend a little time just uh, setting the stage going back to uh, the beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 begins, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And I want to give you just a little bit of an overview here as to what this uh, looks like. Now, it seems like I've got one slide out of order because I know I put it in here. Okay, there it is. Here's a map of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it's not a sea. That's a bad English translation. It's not a sea. It's a lake. The Greek word that is translated sea can mean sea or lake. Sea is salt water. Lake is fresh water. It's the Lake of Galilee or the Lake of Canaret. And here you see the um, Sea of Galilee itself. And down here on the uh, to the southeast shore, you have the town of Tiberias. And then as you go up the shoreline several miles, you come to the village of Magdala, which is where Mary was from, Mary from Magdala or Mary the Magdalene. And then you continue to come up around the uh, northwest shore and you come to the village of Capernaum. And Capernaum is where uh, Peter lived. This is where Jesus had a home and many of his Miracles and his teaching took place in and around uh, Capernaum in this area, this northwest uh, quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. And so the scene that takes place here takes place down. uh, Some of the people that are coming out are coming out from Tiberias. It begins where Jesus feeds the 5,000, which I believe, according to evidence within this chapter, was probably in or near Tiberias, and then at that night, that evening or that afternoon, as Jesus gets away from the crowd, he goes up uh, to be alone on one of the hills uh, in that area, one of the ridges that you see just back from the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples can't find him. They take off in their boat, and they are headed to Capernaum, and they get out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up in the evening, and then Jesus walks on the water and comes out to them. So that's the framework of events that take place here, the first part of chapter 6. And we see a number of things that are, impo- that are important to note within the, um, within the context. So let's begin by, with just put a slide up here for you so you can see uh, something of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. This slide is looking from the north to the south, and the buildings that you see on the distant horizon there, that's the modern city of Tiberias. So that gives you an idea of the size of the uh, Sea of Galilee. So as you start off with uh, the chapter, Jesus goes over to the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude follows him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So their motivation is that their curiosity is stimulated by the fact that he's uh, healing 
uh, people. So the crowds follow him because of the signs which he performed and not necessarily because they are interested in him spiritually. They're, they Remember, the major problem he faces in, in the first part of his uh, his ministry is that he's offering the kingdom and because of the uh, pharisaical theology, the people are thinking of the kingdom in a literal manner that he's going to come and establish a political kingdom over against and overthrow Rome. And that's what they're looking for is a political leader, not a spiritual leader. So the crowd follows him because their curiosity and their, uh, is stimulated by his healing uh, Jesus then goes up on a mountain, and the word there is horos. It doesn't mean mountain. If you're from, uh, been up in the Rocky Mountains lately, uh, you would not think that anything around the Sea of Galilee would ever be called a mountain. These are like hills, uh, not quite as hilly even as some of the things you'll see around the hill country of Texas. So Jesus goes up on a hill, which, and the term there can just mean a, a, an area of relatively high el- elevation. And we, John notes for us in verse 4 that the Passover was near. So this is prior to the Passover, so it's roughly the end of February or early March, which is still a fairly cool time. Rain, there's some rain, the early rains in Israel in the spring, and so it, we'll note that there's a grass on the hill for the people to sit down and you'll note from some of the pictures I have here, for example, the next picture, there's just not a whole lot of grass when you're there in, in June. So it was a comfortable setting in the early part of the spring. Uh, he also notes uh, with relation to Passover, we think of the different elements in the Passover meal, the lamb that depicts Jesus Christ as the lamb uh, who takes away the sin of the world, and we think of the unleavened bread, which was uh, a picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes over to the Lord's table as well as as the wine. So the Passover is the first day in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a one-week-long feast. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is Passover. So the context, the, uh, the chronological context, is that bread is... On the horizon, it is, they're about to begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The <clears throat> Unleavened Bread's the focal point there, and so Jesus is going to use this as a teaching opportunity to teach about his, his person and work. And so uh, Jesus looks up and he sees this great multitude coming toward him, and he asks Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And Jesus says this, according to verse 6, to test them, to get them to think logistically about how in the world are all these, going to pe- all these people going to be sustained and what are you going to do about it. In verse 7, Philip says, well, we, we, even if we don't have enough money to buy all of this bread, what we have isn't sufficient. We couldn't feed them all anyway. And so the disciples are left with a quandary and they, um, Andrew comes up and finds a young boy who has five barley loaves, and two small fish. And so Jesus then says in verse 10, have the people sit down. And John notes, now there was much grass in that place. See how it fits the time and the place. The Bible is not some fantasy book, but it fits very clearly. The descriptions all work within the time and place as it's described. So the people sat down, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So there were more than 5,000 there. The men are numbered at 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, he distributes them, and we're familiar with the story that uh, the miracle of the multiplication of the fishes and the loaves. And the traditional site for this is the site that is depicted here on the on the overhead. Now, we go on to read, afterwards gather up the fragments, and when they gathered them up, there were uh, 12 baskets of fragments of the five barley loaves. And the point here is that God's, that, that, that's going to be made, the loaves, the bread, are going to be used to depict the provision of God primarily in the person of Jesus as the bread of life. And the point here is that God's provision of 
The bread of life is more than sufficient. It's more than enough. He just doesn't give a little bit. He just doesn't give uh, enough. It is more than sufficient. It could have taken care of many more than just the ones uh, who showed up. So when the people saw what Jesus had done, verse 14 said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So this is the event that takes place and sets the context uh, for the chapter. So we go on then to John chapter 6, verse 15, when Jesus had perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. See, they have this political agenda to make him the king and to establish a political kingdom. And Jesus is going to show that a political solution that is not preceded by a spiritual solution is no solution. And that is an important principle for us to remember in this election year. There are so many people that get uh, overly concerned. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. We should be very concerned. But people get uh, just overly concerned and caught up in everything that's going on in the political season. And the problems in this country are not going to be solved politically. The problems in this country are only going to be solved spiritually with a change uh, in the nature of people. Without a spiritual solution, uh, then all we're doing in the uh, picturesque language of J. Vernon McGee is we're just polishing the brass on a sinking ship. And that's as far as it's going to, it's going to get. So, uh, we, we don't get caught up in the political solution because without the spiritual change, uh, political solutions are only superficial. But that's where the Jews were. It's a political solution. And so Jesus departs from them to be in the mountains by himself alone. And if you ever want to do an interesting study, go through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus goes off by himself to be alone uh, to pray. It happens again and again and again as in his humanity he's recharging his own uh, spiritual batteries, taking time to pray uh, constantly in fellowship with the Father. So when evening comes, so we're back to uh, something like the first picture we ha- I had up here. It's getting dark. Uh, dusk is coming. Evening is coming. The disciples decide they've waited long enough. They need to leave. And they've actually waited too long because uh, Darkness will descend before they get across the Sea of Galilee. They get in the boat, they cross over towards Capernaum, and verse 17 says it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they've gone about two-thirds of the way across the sea, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Then they willingly received him in the boat. And notice another miracle. Immediately, the boat is at the shore. So they just, as soon as he got on the boat, it was immediately transported over to the land where they were going at Capernaum. Now, on the following day, the next morning, uh, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that the, Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So these folks are coming out from Tiberias. They noticed that uh, the disciples had left. There's no other boat. How, where did Jesus go? How did he get across? And then they began to look for him and the disciples, and they came to Capernaum. Verse 24, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, how did you come here? So let's just look at some of the pictures I have here uh, to give you a little bit of an idea of Capernaum. Now this shows is a shot looking to the north, and Capernaum is located uh, just off to, this is looking really more to the northwest, and Capernaum is located right up in this uh, area just on the right-hand part of the shore. Now, as you enter into Capernaum, there are various signs uh, introducing the place. Some of the more humorous signs along the way are found in Capernaum. Uh, here's a nice uh, bird's-eye view of the 
archaeological finds that are there. Uh, in the center here, we have a second century synagogue, remains of a second century synagogue that's built on top of the first century synagogue, which is where Jesus uh, would have taught. Over here, we have a Roman Catholic church, which is built over the site of uh, what is believed to be the home of Peter. Now, whenever you go over to Israel, there's all kinds of different things that people will say, this is where this happened, that's where that happened. And uh, most of the guys that I know would classify things in in terms of four categories. Category number one would indicate that we're pretty sure and certain from both uh, written evidence and archaeological evidence that a site and a location is what it's claimed to be. Uh, the second category would be things that are uh, probable, uh, pr- pretty likely. There is either archaeological or written evidence to substantiate a site. The third is that it's uh, possible but not likely. And then the fourth is it's just made up out of thin air. Uh, this site is probably a one or a two. There is evidence going uh, in scriptural evidence written uh, like graffiti on the walls of this first century house uh, indicating that this was a place where Christians came and venerated as early as the first part of the second century. And so you don't find that anywhere else. So there's, a, there's something unique and distinct about this particular house, and there's evidence that a church was built there over that house as early as the mid part of the second century. So as as things go, this is pretty uh, pretty strong evidence that uh, we know Peter lived in Capernaum. This is where uh, Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and so there's there's pretty solid evidence that this would be uh, that particular location. But of course, whenever you go to a lot of places in Israel, because of the influence of these religious uh, groups down through the years, they always want to protect these these holy places, so you have lots of signs uh, to uh, make sure that you don't do anything that would uh, deface or uh, profane these holy places. So I like this particular uh, sign. This always has a little resonance with anybody who's a Texan. No dogs, no smoking, no guns, and no short clothing. So they're... Very precise on on that. They want to make everybody, even the men, if you have shorts on, you have to wear a wrap-around skirt. Ladies have to wear a wrap-around skirt, wrap-around shawl. Uh, This sign was there last year, but it wasn't there this year. Holy place, no shorts, and no decollete. So if you don't know what that means, you can look it up when you get home. Here's another shot looking across uh, the Sea of Galilee from the area of Capernaum. And then here are the ruins there at Capernaum. You can see the foundations and the lower parts of the walls from the houses in this fishing village, which is what it was. This is where Peter, James, and John, Andrew had their uh, fishing business uh, with their father. And you can see from how the uh, houses are laid out, you see the water in the background, so it's right on the shore. And it was lost. Nobody knew where the city was. It was even thought to have been made up until they, this was discovered by a, a, a mid-19th century explorer uh, named Robinson. So that gives you just a little bit of an idea of what Capernaum looks like uh, today and the ruins that we find there. Okay, now, the whole background for this is emphasizing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of heaven. So verse 22 starts, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, they go looking for Jesus. So when they find him, verse 26, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, because if they came from this because of the signs, that would indicate that they were looking, they were, they were being stimulated to seek him as Messiah. That's the point that John's making in the gospel. These, he says in John 20, 
uh, 30 and 31, these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But the these refers to the previous verse where he writes that Jesus did many other signs. So some people will say, well, a faith based on signs is not a very strong faith. But John is writing his gospel built around certain signs because signs give objective evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So he, he says, you didn't come because of the signs, you came because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And this, this is the modus operandi of every politician almost down through the ages, is if you just feed the masses, then they will follow you anywhere. It's the old principle that if you feed people well, then whatever else happens on a trip or in the military, then that take, covers a multitude of sins. And the idea there is that because Jesus fed them, uh, now they're following him. It, they're just uh, they're totally focused on finite material sustenance, and so he commands in verse 27: Don't labor for the food which perishes. Don't put your focus on the details of life that perish, that are here today and gone tomorrow. But labor and labor is left out, but it's implied. But labor for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him, that is, on Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in this particular passage is we often make a distinction for sound theological reasons that salvation is based on faith and not on works. And what we mean when we use the term works and doing something is the idea that somebody can through, through ritual or through conduct or through association with the right group can do something that, that merits favor with God. And that we, we define it somewhat strictly. Now, Jesus is going to use the word working and doing in this chapter in a broader sense in that any time you believe something, in a, a broad general sense, you've done something, that you have worked, you have done something. And that is not a conflict of meaning. We use the word that way uh, many times. So he's saying here, don't labor for the food which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. And he doesn't mean you have to labor for salvation, but it's, it, he's talking within the, the context and just contrasting uh, their focal point. So they respond to him and say, well, then what should we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So see, he's defining work here not in the sense of meritorious work, but in terms of non-meritorious belief. Now, as we get into this particular chapter, it's important to recognize that this verb believe is central to understanding this chapter. Nine times in this chapter, Jesus is going to uh, connect eternal life, salvation, with believing. The verb believing is used 98 times in the Gospel of John. And it's used nine times, or a little less than 10%, in this chapter. So you would understand from that that believing is a key idea in this chapter. The word bread is used uh, in this chapter 21 times. So that, again, shows the emphasis in this chapter is on bread as a symbol for uh, spiritual sustenance. So we go through, continue to go through the chapter, and he emphasizes that this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. So this sets the framework for everything he's going to say. The focal point is that you have to believe in Jesus Christ as the one God sent. So therefore they said to him, verse 30, uh, verse 30, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Well, he's already performed numerous signs. He fed them the day before, and yet they come back and they want more of a sign, and they relate this to the Old Testament event of manna. And he said, they say, our fathers ate the manna, in the desert, the manna was the food that God gave to the Jews. Now, the background for understanding that is in Exodus chapter uh, 16. And in Exodus chapter 16, 
you have the Jews coming out of Egypt. We're not going to take the time to go there. You have the Jews coming out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and there's no food, and they're starving. So what do they do? They start to grumble. They start to complain. And in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, the, the verb for grumbling is used seven times to emphasize that they're just complaining and griping about their circumstance and whining. God doesn't take care of us. God hasn't provided for us. You know, he brought us out here in the desert to starve. And so it is the crowd that brings up this uh, episode and says that their fathers ate man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, Jesus responds to them and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's going to make this analogy from the manna that God provided in the wilderness as physical bread for physical sustenance to the spiritual bread and spiritual sustenance and nourishment that God has provided through through him. So he says, my Father now gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So according to the context, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the one who is the bread of heaven. And this is going to be reinforced when we get down into uh, verse 35. And later on in the chapter, he states, very clearly, I am the bread of life. And so he identifies himself as the bread of life. Now, verse 34. Then they said to him, Well, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I want you to notice the parallelism that occurs in those verses. Let me get the slide up here for you so you can see it. Um, The parallelism is between coming to me and believing in me. So, in this context, we see that Jesus sees coming to him and believing in him as synonymous terms. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are two different ways of talking about the same thing. The key idea set up in the the text is believing in him. That's what's important for salvation. But he uses synonymous phrases to illustrate this point. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In John 6, uh, 35. Now, in John 7, 17, he emphasizes again that the point here is going to be on the will of the individual. Now, I'm making this point ahead of time because of a problem passage we're going to run into in just a minute. In John 7, 17, rather, in the next chapter, Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do his will. What is the Father's will? The Father's will is for to come to Jesus. The Father's will is to believe in him that's doing the work of the Father. So John 7, 17, he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So the issue is volition. Now, verse 36. But Jesus says, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Empirical evidence is not sufficient to lead people to Jesus Christ. There has been more than enough empirical evidence down through the ages. There was evidence of his resurrection, and yet there were many Pharisees and Sadducees that didn't believe on him. There were many in this crowd who didn't believe in him. They had just seen the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. They saw other miracles, but they didn't believe in him. Because ultimately the issue boils down to whether or not you're willing to trust in the Word of God. This is why uh, we have this uh, event in Luke 16 when the uh, Lazarus and the rich man die and they go to 
uh, paradise and uh, torments respectively. And the rich man says uh, to Father Abraham, please send Lazarus back. Let him come back from the dead so he can tell my brothers about whether or not about what's going to happen to them so they'll be saved. And Abraham says, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe a miracle. They won't believe a man who's come back from the dead. The point is, it's not, when we're witnessing to people, it's not an argument about who's right. It's not trying to present the tighter intellectual case or coming up with the best uh, rational argument. Uh, There's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not what makes... uh, uh, witnessing effective. It is a spiritual issue, and you can have the best evidence, the best presentation of the gospel that you can ever present, that anyone could ever present, and still people will reject because of the, they are not willing, according to John seven seventeen. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of what? The teaching. In other words, the priority comes from the teaching of the Word of God. So in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, coming to Jesus means what contextually? Believing in him. Okay? So we could, we could paraphrase verse 37, All that the Father gives me will believe in me, and the one who believes in me I will not cast out. The issue here isn't on that the Father is going to give them to him. The issue in the whole text puts the priority on believing in him. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me I lose nothing. That's eternal security. Those who the Father gives to him are the ones who believe in him. The one who believes in him are the ones the Father gives him, and of the ones the Father gives him, he won't lose any. So that means that if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you can't lose that salvation. Jesus is not going to let go, and you will be raised up in in the rapture. Now, this phrase, all that the Father gives me, is a phrase that's used four other times in the Gospel of John. It's used here in 639, and it's used in 17, 1 to 2, and in 17, 6, and 17, 9. And in those passages in seven, chapter 17, that is the, what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus when he is praying for his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And in 17, 20, he makes it clear that there is a distinction between them as the disciples, those whom you have given me, and those who believe through him. Just hold your place here. I, I think we ought to take some time, take a minute, just so you see this, because this is important to understand what Jesus is talking about here. In 17, uh, what I'm saying here is this phrase, those whom the Father has given him, is a phrase that describes Jewish believers and Old Testament Jewish believers that the Father has given to Jesus. And Jesus is coming, and as he announces the gospel, these Old Testament believers are coming to him. They're being drawn to him because he's, they're already believers, and he's, he's teaching the word. And so when you come to John 17, 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, that is, these whom you gave me, but also those who will believe in me through their word. See, the point is he's making this, this distinction that those who believe in me through their word are us. But we're not Old Testament Jewish saints who saw the Messiah. We're not those who are coming to salvation at the message of the Messiah. Now, that's important to understand the back, what, what he's getting ready to say. He says, um, all that the Father gives me, that is, these Jewish uh, believers, they will come to me. These Old Testament saints, they're going to hear my message and they're going to respond and they're going to come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I am come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will the Father sent me that of all he has given to me, i.e. these Old Testament saints and those who are believing in me before the cross in the first advent, uh, I should lose nothing 
but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, that's not us, we don't see the Son. This is talking about that generation. All those who see the Son and believe in him may have everlasting life. So what's the key to having everlasting life? Believing in him. That's the key all the way through here. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Well, they're, they're, the Jews here is not talking about all the Jews. It's a term John uses to refer to the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're complaining because he's identifying himself uh, with manna. He's drawing this connection. And so they say, well, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Well, actually... Uh, if they're rejecting Jesus, they really didn't know Mary or Joseph, and they don't understand who Jesus is. And But they're saying, well, he grew up just like any other kid in the neighborhood, so there's nothing special about him. So how can he say he's come down from heaven? Jesus confronts him, verse 43, don't murmur among yourselves. And then he, verse 44, this is the problem passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is uh, the third time he has said something about raising him up on the last day. The first time he said this is in verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I should lose nothing. What's the key to those who he's given to me? Those who uh, Father gives to me will come to me. And these are the ones who believe in him. Verse uh, 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in me may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But now he introduces a new concept. He introduces the concept, those of the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the drawing of the believer has got to be uh, related to uh, believing in him. Now, what's important about this is this is a passage that is used uh, many times in the argument between Calvinism and Arminianism to argue for the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace. And the doctrine of irresistible grace means that uh, is built on the Calvinistic understanding, first point in TULIP, that's the acronym for the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, that man can't do anything to save himself. And that really should mean he can't do anything to merit salvation of his own. But the way they craft it within the five points of Calvinism is that man is so dead he can't even uh, will, and for them will is always meritorious. And here we see it's not meritorious. But that's what they would say. So what, in order to overcome their resistance, Irresistible grace means that the Holy Spirit only works on a few, those who are the elect, and the Holy Spirit then will irresistibly uh, draw them uh, to the Father. And there are various passages that are used uh, within uh, Calvinism in order to try to substantiate this particular meaning of the text. And we have, let me see here, this is one verse... John 18.10, Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave. Now, this word for sword, I mean for drawing, is the same word, el kuo, that we have here for unless the father draws him. And they'll go to a passage like that, this, and they'll say, see, drawing it, that indicates it, 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 it a sword has no volition, but it's something that is, that is being uh, taken totally at the will of the one who draws it. And then they'll go to John 21, 6, relating to the dragging of the net. And see here, once again, it's totally at the, at the control of the one who uh, drags the net. And then they'll go to a passage like, um, oh, let's just skip over to Acts 16, 19, where Paul and Silas are dragged off to the marketplace uh, the Bema seat where they're going to be judged and then dragged off to jail. And their point is that, see, this means you're dragged against your will. 
But the word elkuo, if you look it up in the dictionary, can mean dragging against the will, but it can also mean to attract. It has a range of meaning. And in John 12:32, Jesus says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw or attract all men to myself. It is not a drawing that is exclusive to a set group of people which the Calvinists will emphasize as as the elect. So when we get to our passage in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is talking about the Father is going to be attracting unbelievers to Christ. Now, how is this done? That's the important thing. Is it done through an interior ministry of the Holy Spirit that is that counters the will or controls the will of certain unbelievers? No. You have to look at the context. The very next verse in verse 45 says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God, Everyone is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who comes who comes to Jesus? Those who have heard and learned from the Father, not the Spirit, number one, that's your first observation. And number two, the context is a quote out of Isaiah chapter fifty four thirteen, which is dealing with a prophecy in the millennial kingdom. But the context or the application that Jesus is using here in John 6:44 is that this drawing occurs through being taught the Word of God. So that it's not that God is reaching inside of people and, and manipulating their volition so that they will be brought to Jesus and it only affects a few. It is that God draws or attracts all people through the proclamation and the teaching of God's word. So Jesus goes on to say, as the Pharisees grumble among themselves, the same word that's used of the grumbling of the uh, uh, Exodus generation in in the Greek Septuagint. He says in verse, um, no, skip down, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. It doesn't say who is drawn irresistibly by the Holy Spirit has eternal life. He says, he who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. That was just physical nourishment. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, verse 51, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Now, a couple of things we need to note about this are very important for understanding the analogy. First of all, eating is something that anyone can do. Eating is non-meritorious. Anybody can choose to eat or not eat. Once you eat, though, there are certain automatic involuntary uh, reflexes and muscles and systems that take over to, to digest the food, break down the food, and make it usable. But the option of eating is up to each one of us. That's the volition. That's what's comparable to faith. We trust Christ, and then it is God, the Holy Spirit, who takes that faith and makes it usable, makes it effective uh, for salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about. If anyone eats of the bread, eating has to do with, is a, is a, when you compare this with the other passages here in uh, John chapter 6, eating is comparable to coming to the Father and is comparable to um, believing in him. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. John 6.53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So drinking and eating are metaphorical expressions for believing in Jesus. They're comparable to coming to Jesus. He just uses this as a metaphor. John 6.54, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. This is not talking about the Roman Catholic 
uh, doctrine of transubstantiation, that you ha- that the elements in the Lord's table are turned into the literal body and blood of Christ, and by eating them, uh, we uh, become saved. That's why the, in Roman Catholic theology they have to celebrate the Mass week after week after week because you're never sure you're saved. But what John is saying here is you can be sure you're saved. Uh, Jesus is saying all you have to do is believe in me. Believing in him is being pictured through the imagery of eating, which is receiving something into yourself, and just as receiving bread into yourself provides physical life, eating or receiving Jesus into yourself uh, provides spiritual life. And that is the point of the entire metaphor. He says in verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds in me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father ate the man and are dead, but he who eats the bread will live forever. So that is his point. And this whole imagery of the bread, the unleavened bread, comes out of the table of showbread, the tabernacle that Jesus is, the bread of life. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at the next uh, piece of furniture in the uh, holy place, and that is the altar of incense. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that Uh, Jesus Christ is more than sufficient for us, that he has provided everything we need for life and godliness, and that it is only by faith in him, trusting in him, believing in him, that we have eternal life. No uh, effort on our part, nothing that we can do can ever gain your favor, gain your merit. It is freely given because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we study tonight in Christ's name. Amen.